0: Neoliberalism, huh? Everyone's talking
1: about it, but what is it? Former, former Habsburg Empire. <laughs> They're partially fleeing the draft. <laughs> <laughs> fleeing the Habsburg the the first World War. <laughs> that's right, yeah, that's from yeah. <laughs> good. A good answer, so good. Welcome, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of The End of History. Today we're talking to Quinn Slobodian, historian of modern German and intellectual history at Wellesley College, about his recent excellent book, Globalists, The End of Empire, and The Birth of Neoliberalism. Alpha Bunga Bunga today is myself, Alex Hohili in Sao Paulo, George Hoare in London, and Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury. And it's Phil's voice you'll hear first, talking to Quinn.
0: Hi, Quinn. Great to have you on the show. In the acknowledgements of the book... You, which is always at the end of the book in American books, which always, I find always slightly weird and don't know why that is, because in British books it's acknowledgments are at the beginning. Anyway, mm-hmm. in the acknowledgments of the book, you talk about how it was partly written as a way of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the way I kind of, this is what I um, understood from it, as a way of making up to your peers for being absent or distant from the anti-capitalist um, protest or anti-globalization protests in Seattle in 1999. And I was wondering maybe if you could tell us a little bit about um, how that connects to the book and the background to the book and also your, how your own ideas were formed.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. As I mentioned, the, the protests happened when I was in my third year of undergraduate studies at Lewis and Clark College, which is just a few hours south of Seattle. Meaning, there's really no good argument not to just pile into a car (laughs) and go a few hours north, or get on a Greyhound bus and head up there. Um, But nonetheless, it wasn't something that moved me, and it wasn't like a conscious decision that I, you know, was going to take a pass on this particular protest. I just wasn't someone who went to protests at that time in my life. And what kind of a person was I? I guess I was kind of an aesthete, like I. I joke maybe there or somewhere else that I decided to stay at home and watch the latest Lars von Trier movie on VHS instead of go to the, <laughs> you know, world yeah. historical protest happening nearby. Um, I think that, you know, I had kind of, without really thinking about it, swallowed some kind of 90s Kool Aid about the end of history in the sense that. The only politics that seemed to matter to me, if I even thought about them that way, would be kind of subcultural politics and kind of dropout drop out politics. So I was part of the kind of the punk scene and the hardcore scene in my my hometown when I was a teenager and, and in my college years. And it seemed like the only worthwhile politics were happening kind of like in basements and, uh, you know, sweaty all ages youth centers and stuff like that. Uh, I didn't think that was going to like cohere into some grander project. I never even thought about it that way. It was just a kind of a way of checking out of what seemed like a decided fact, which was the world was governed according to the principles of capitalism as administered by sort of distant heads of state and ever even more distant international institutions like the WTO and the IMF. And what business of that was mine? But you had, but you did know people then who did go on the protest. I did. I mean, I was a history major, and at the time there was a big sort of gap for some reason between people who were majoring in history and people who were majoring in sociology and anthropology. And my uh, superficial reading, that may still have actually had some truth to it at the time, about the motivation of my my peers to go up to Seattle was that it was part of some kind of project of self-aggrandizement so a bunch of them got arrested and they ended up writing theses about their own arrests and their own (laughs) their own persecution and and became these kind of war stories and and somehow i wasn't able to think about it this is just a sign of my own pettiness and like the small horizons of my own imagination i think that i wasn't able to see it except as something about a different form of like subcultural self-fashioning like oh that's your thing that's your that's your gig. You go and do those things. I don't do those things. Um, so it really took <laughs> way too long and really um, it, went, it had happened sort of via the the opposition to the to the invasion of Iraq, which I was involved in and in, in New York for. And that was my kind of politicization process. And once kind of getting, John, into that it started to occur to me that you know these distant decisions being made by distant heads of state and so on were nonetheless things that we would eventually feel the sharp end of in our own lives. And so we didn't really have the option of just dropping out or checking out of them. So my way back to the the importance of the terrain of kind of high politics of that kind was was definitely a road that led through the invasion of Iraq.
0: It's, so I was I was a bit I was a bit taken aback um, when I read it, because it was interesting to see somebody, um, because we're roughly the same generation, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, who felt that, you know, felt that they'd missed out by not being um, involved, I suppose, in the anti-globalization, anti-capitalist movement of that era. Because, so I went on the London protest, which followed in 2000, I actually had to look it up. I mean, I remember being there, I know it was roughly after Seattle, but I had to check and it was on May date. So the date mm-hmm. didn't, the fact that it was on May 1st in London in 2000 didn't stick mm-hmm. in my head.
1: Mm-hmm. I had to
0: look it up. But so, and it was kind of a reverse. I thought I thought of myself very much as part of that movement. Mm-hmm. Um, And I, there were things about it only now that I kind of, I mean, I knew them at the time, but I didn't fully assimilate them. And I only registered them now kind of properly, I think, understand them better in retrospect. So mm-hmm. what was interesting about it to me was it was very, um, it was, Reminded me of protests that I would go on subsequently, which is that there was very little common feeling among people. Everyone was kind of drifting in the same direction, but there was no strong sense of um, political cohesion or a common message beyond a kind of vague, um, you know, a vague sense of uh, dissatisfaction or disquiet. And it was also um, it was very carnivalesque. And so this Mm -hmm. also kind of set the pattern for um, that model of carnivalesque um protest and you know though it was it was all great fun and the black block were there and <laughs> um you know the it was thrilling to kind of run away from the riot cops and all of that mm-hmm. i could even then i could tell that they were being fairly restrained you know even when you could see them kind of charging the crowd and deliberately trying to terrify the crowd which was you know it was a new thing for me to witness being a nice middle-class boy mm-hmm. from oxford um, hmm. nonetheless, I could tell even back then that they were fairly restrained and, you know, by the end they'd kind of closed in the crowd and at the end I had to walk through the police lines and obviously they let me through because they saw as a nice middle class boy. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it was kind of anyways, I suppose it's by way of saying that my, it was precisely being on the protest that yeah. pushed me away right. from, eventually pushed me away from carnivalesque kind of demonstrations and also from the kind of anarcho, um, anti-capitalism of that era.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I also had the the kind of relevant pre chapter to the to the ninety nine story for me. Also, anyway, was that I'd grown up in different places. So I grew up on a, a Indian reservation in in British Columbia, and then in Lesotho in southern Africa, and in Vanuatu in the South Pacific. And this it was actually my first kind of station of my life in in the United States. That time in college and there's something about the american attitude which i still can't quite you know sit happily with and in that case it, it really crystallized around a couple of slogans that were also part of the the 99 protest one is of course whose streets are streets and another one that i'd almost forgot but my friend is working on um on the on a documentary about the period and he was showing me the footage is um, whose world our world and there's there's something still about the way that when Americans mobilize, especially sort of white middle class Americans, it it has this sort of air of entitlement, which I, I had grown up with United Nations T-shirts and we are the world and all of that. And I had sort of lived that in a peculiar kind of cosmopolitan world wandering way. And then to be back in the United States and have, you know. Union leaders and people like that and kind of middle class college students saying whose world, our world, it sort of seemed to me I didn't it didn't resonate with me because it was sort of like, well, it is your world, America. (laughs) (laughs) You you already have the world. You you want more of it or what's going on here? (laughs) Like there's the, 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 the imagery that, you know, you can see now if you look back at photos from 99 of, say, you know, a world, a globe with a serpent wrapped around it. Right yeah and that's a way of opposing the wto i'm still kind of uncomfortable with that kind of a way of seeing (laughs) globality as just in opposition to the the true the true zone of the of the nation of the heartland of the united states which is what was at the was driving a lot of people's anger at the time along with of course all kinds of other inchoate emotions so yeah i mean looking back at it i think I mean, obviously, the the approach that I ended up taking, which I describe in the acknowledgements to the book, is to not try to understand better the opposition, but try to understand better the enemy, to try to try to sort of pick apart the logic that drove those who were arriving to meet at the WTO rather than those who were driving up there to oppose the WTO. And that ended up being the kind of long term intellectual project that became the book.
0: So I'm, um, I guess I'm kind of the daddy because I'm the oldest of the ABB crew. Okay. So George, George and Alex, the young, yeah. Well, maybe. This uncle. is
1: I creepy. Phil, move, into. come on. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: George George and, uh, George and Alex are, um, a uh, slightly younger generation. So I don't know, uh, I don't know how they recall the 19, kind of the anti-globos of the 90s, early
1: 2000s. Well, I mean, I, uh, I was certainly sympathetic. I kind of identified with it in my teens, which would have been the early 2000s. Just before the Iraq War became the main kind of mobilizing uh, mobilizing factor, I guess, for anyone who was alternative or left-wing or however you want to describe yourself. But I, I mean, I also was someone who moved around a bit and felt much... identified much more with some sort of cosmopolitan uh, idea of politics than any sort of national politics. It actually felt like so deadening that you'd never... Really want to really think about national politics, and anyway, which country's national politics? And anyway, you know, um, I actually wanted to go on one of the demonstrations where I lived, and my parents didn't let me, and and uh, I was too much of a good boy, to, I guess, to <laughs> to insist on it. Um, did you ask?
0: Did you ask permission to go on a protest? I
1: didn't ask for permission. I said I'm going. And they said no, and then I, I don't know, kind of stewed, and then <laughs> found <laughs> something else that. to do. But I mean, I was reading, like, no, I remember, like, reading No Logo, and then you know, trying to be smart and reading joseph stiglitz and and only understanding half of it and (laughs) and so on um but it's interesting how many of the people actually we've had on the podcast people who we think are really smart and who passed through kind of the anti-globalization movement you know probably we're all of a similar age um Mm -hmm. passed through it and then you know actually were really repelled by it and perhaps in some ways led them to become i don't know Marxist or, I don't know, whatever kind of political label you want to give to it, but something which is, uh, I don't know, maybe a little bit more rooted um, and certainly drifts away from the sort of anarchoid tendencies of of the anti-globalization movement.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's the the healthy relationship to have to your formative young experiences, right? I mean, of the 68ers who still talk about 68, it's the ones who just have a romantic, uh, still like right. sentimental attachment to it that you should be the most suspicious of, right? Absolutely. I mean, people, you you know, you have these young experiences, you work through them, you think back on them, you take a, take them apart and reassemble them. I mean, that's, I think, a that's the appropriate attitude towards, like, a life path
0: in politics. You're being suspiciously quiet, George. Were you... No, like- <clears throat> I feel he was too yeah, for the police.
2: <laughs> no, for,
3: for me it was uh, kind of I wasn't there. I wasn't a- a- able to to have the, the cred. I think I was just t- too young. Your so parents kind didn't of, let you go. Well, I don't know. They didn't even raise the question. <laughs> <laughs> so even more of a normie. You can't um, even feel
1: your chains if you don't move. You know. So... <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs>
3: um, No, but I think it was it was more that this um, having been a part of that was something that people slightly older than me used as a um, some kind of credibility uh, or some kind of I don't know authority in making political arguments so this was some kind of transformative or formative political experience having been part of these anti-globalization protests. So it was always something that was a little bit um, a little bit distant and a little bit kind of had its mystique and and had its kind of um, I guess it's a bit like no logo the book it's kind of radical chic edge and it took a little while for me to understand what that really meant.
0: Mm -hmm. So what I think you made um, a good point, Alex, actually, about the that there was a link, I think, because part of the appeal of anti-globalization was also the fact. And this connects to I guess this connects to some of the basic points about neoliberalism is the fact that domestic politics seemed so locked in effectively. The lack of ideological competition, what everybody now, you know, I mean, everybody now calls kind of technocratic centrism. Um, the lack of polarization between the two parties, everyone competing for the center ground, everyone accepting basic parameters of capitalism of the day. And that, I think, uh, made, you know, kind of in a way force people or people imagine kind of looking upwards outside of the confines of the nation state, which was so kind of politically restricted and ideologically dead, that that was where the battle was. And, you know, whole theories were kind of cooked up around this. But anyway, we'll get into that. One just one last thing about Seattle Quinn is um mm-hmm. so because you begin or at least in the acknowledgements you cite Seattle as an inspiration but you seem to have ended up writing a book about not about anti-globalization or anti-capitalism but about the European Union mm-hmm. so can you can you discuss the connection briefly before we get stuck into the meat of it
2: well i mean i think that the one of the discoveries in the process of writing the book, that I that I wasn't expecting, and that you know is out there once you go looking for it, but I ha- certainly hadn't seen it kind of mapped out uh, as directly as as I found it, was that that the idea of the constitutionalization of free trade within the space of the WTO was really given its dry run with the European Union, at least in its conceptual framework. So, one shouldn't see the WTO as just an outward projection of American power, which is usually how it's understood, but as a kind of a scaling up of the model of of at least one version of the European Union in locking in certain freedoms of, of capital and goods in particular.
3: So I think this, this maybe brings us onto one of the central ideas of the, the whole book. Um, and maybe, you know, to, to phrase it in, in this way, would you say that the central argument of the book is, is is around kind of reversing misconceptions about neoliberalism that it's not anti-state but it's about a different state so it's not about the national but the transnational um i guess another way to phrase this as well is what do you think of the commonsensical understandings of neoliberalism mm-hmm. that you that you argue against
2: mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think that that the point that that neoliberals don't seek to do away with the state but to refashion it is Certainly not a new one. I mean, there there mm. ha- have been people saying that for for decades now. I mean, Jamie Pack is one of the first ones that spring to mind talking about how the rollback of the state is always the rollout of another. You know that that phrase I think is still quite useful. Um, the notion that the self-regulating market is not an actual existing thing but always and requires new kinds of law and statecraft to encase it and make it possible has also, I think, been common sense for people who've been looking seriously at neoliberalism as both theory and as practice. Um, If you look at an early book like Andrew Gamble's book on on Hayek, The Iron Cage of Liberty, or indeed his early work on Thatcherism, strong on the strong state and the free economy, and the idea has been there. So that in itself it may be that some people are only coming across that first in my book and so for them it's kind of it's kind of a novelty and so and that's great I'm glad to to push more on that topic but I think that the the main narrative that I was trying to revise was one about scale right and I think there the the story that we have from people who have been trying to combine intellectual history with political history is that that there was the there were these moments these kind of genesis moments of the you know the colloquial in Paris in 1938, the first meeting of the Malpighian Society in Switzerland in 1947. So it begins with this sort of like brave troop of, you know, outsiders, and then eventually they kind of take the ramparts of Chile first in 1973, but then afterwards thatcher and reagan of course and then the story goes global by the 1990s with the big institutions the structural adjustment policies of the imf the wto nafta the eu if you're a person who sees the eu as a neoliberal construct so there's this there's this this diffusion story where things start in the heart of europe yes but pretty quickly the story moves to the us and uk and it only really goes global so to speak relatively recently, in the last decade or so of the 20th century. And my attempt was to really flip that narrative around Mm -hmm. or that trajectory to say, no, in fact, the very problem that the neoliberals came together to address was the shattering of the world economy that followed Mm -hmm. the First World War. And that was actually the 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 first conundrum, not one that they only came around to by the 1990s. The first conundrum was how to reorganize sovereignty and politics at a global level to allow for the reconstitution of this thing, which they felt had been utterly destroyed by the conflict of the First World War and then the new political ideals that emerged from the First World War. Mm. So by by saying you know neoliberalism didn't just get around to glo- globalization late in the day, but it actually began with a global problematic. That I think is the, the reverse of the of the storyline that I was trying to carry out.
1: So I'm glad yeah. you mentioned scale there, Quinn, because I do want to uh, discuss a little bit further before we actually move on to some of the mm-hmm. history of you know, actually existing neoliberals. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I I mean, just to point on the misconceptions, I think think you're right that by now most people have a notion that neoliberalism involves a strong state and that it Mm -hmm. involves some sort of transformation of the state, that it's not a purely quantitative relationship of more state versus less state. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess... I mean, I, I think even from my own kind of history of, un- of trying to understand neoliberalism, I'm thinking maybe a decade ago, um, but also from the way that I've had conversations about this or arguments with, about this with people, is that people have a, maybe a hard time reconciling the notion that, yes, it involved, that in practice it involves a transformed form of state, but then all this rhetoric about freedom. And I think what's great about your book is that it seems to uh, place the central value of neoliberalism as Uh, to locate the central value of neoliberalism as not freedom, but about order and about a certain type Mm -hmm. of order. And that was, Mm -hmm. for me, that was kind of eye-opening because although I I kind of knew these things, it was like, ah, okay, this is kind of putting it in a much more explicit fashion than I had previously thought of.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the other other big sort of bugbear of the book, which isn't immediately obvious maybe, is the idea that neoliberalism equals economism, right? And so that the Mm. way that, that you can understand what neoliberalism is, is that it just means, you know, the rule to rule like a market and to rule like economists, the rule of the economists is the term that's sort of thrown around a lot. And I think that that really relies on focusing on a particular strain of neoliberal thought, i.e. Chicago school, at the expense of everything happening on on the continent. So the German and Austrian strains of neoliberalism are not only skeptical of ruling like economists, but they actually see economists as sort of the chief agents of socialism in the 20th century, that it was economists who decided that you could see a national economy like a thing in the 1930s enough to tabulate and quantify and plan it. And so for them, the the turn to law and the turn to kind of first principles, and we see this very clearly in the discourse and the practice of of order liberalism in Germany is to adhere to certain edicts about the way economies work that often rely on the notion that the economy itself cannot be seen effectively, certainly not seen and quantified effectively enough that it can be um, uh, the terrain of of redistribution. So I think disentangling the history of economics from the history of neoliberalism is actually extremely important if you want to have the capacity to sort of take on board any kind of economic expertise and whatever anti neoliberal politics you happen to be you know tying your carriage to
1: right and there's this whole idea of the role of actual being able to um, to model and and, you know Mm -hmm. the the role of mathematics and economics and econometrics um, which I think we're going to come on to a bit bit more towards the end but um, Mm -hmm. I did want to ask I think in I mean obviously this your book is an intellectual history and it looks through um the thought of neoliberals and order li- order liberals trying to uh understand what was actually important to them the way you start off is interesting because it, it is i guess one way of capturing these two competing visions of neoliberalism, one which emphasizes individual freedom and the other one which emphasizes more a creation of a transnational order, um, which are sometimes in competition, sometimes not. Uh, and one way of, of looking at this, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, maybe, maybe this isn't exactly the way you think about it, but that basically you have historians who study neoliberalism who emphasize the thoughts of Hayek and, and the rest of the cohort, uh, and the other which looks at social scientists who examine neoliberalism in practice and that perhaps the, new, the historians have tended to emphasize the rollback aspects, uh, whereas the social scientists look at the rollout aspects, the, the role of the state in creating institutions and creating markets. Would you agree with that sort of dichotomy?
2: Um, sort of, but I think that the, the, the historians who do focus on Hayek and Co., all the ones who actually read them, are pretty clear that there's a rollout. Right. I mean, you don't have to read much Hayek. Mm. To see that it's a question of fashioning a new constitution and a new state and a new relationship to law. So even just looking at the thinkers, you wouldn't you wouldn't come to the conclusion that it's just a question of being anti-statist, actually. And I even find that like framing by by Foucault to be a bit um, misleading. so everyone from from James Buchanan to uh, you know Ronald Coase to um, to Ann Kruger and the people who are rethinking the role of the state in um, international development. It's all about rethinking the role of the state. So a, a perfect example of that I can give you is the, the rise to, of Ann Kruger to the head of the research department at the IMF at the beginning of the 1980s is often seen as this kind of signature moment of the arrival of neoliberal ideology at, at the IMF. And if you look at the work that she and her collaborators, including especially Deepak Lal, who later became the president of the Mont Society, were rolling out, what they were calling it was the new political economy. And what they meant by that was that for a long time, economists had not been paying attention to politics and that the secret Uh, to the success or the failure of development actually lay in the way that you constructed the state and the way you constructed politics. And Deepak Lal writes a a well-known article called The Predatory State. And they start talking about ways that state capacity needs to be defined in such a way that it is allowed to do certain things and not allowed to do other things. And mostly it's, you know, it compelled to do things that, that, allow for greater predictability and greater certainty for foreign investors and for for local entrepreneurs and so on and discourage from doing things that spread out spread out resources and expand public services um, so even so i think that there there are ways to write together those those two histories about the kind of the idea level and the rollout level they don't always work sort of perfectly cleanly together but it would be surprising if they did but i think that the people who are who are entering that kind of space now are doing some pretty interesting stuff because they're looking at what I think you have to do which is something beyond the diffusion model it's not just it's not just this small group this small cadre of neoliberal thinkers whose ideas then get you know implanted around the globe but it's about conversations that happen between domestic policymakers who see something attractive about this idea that's coming in and adapt it for their own purposes, often of, you know, expanding their own authority within their own domestic space, and then transforming that into some kind of policy. So the the argument that that the social scientists Noor Dados and Ray Connell made a couple of years ago, asking the question, where in the world does neoliberalism come from? Their argument was always that you need to look at global South elites, because they are the ones who sort of operationalize neoliberal ideas on the ground. And as, so,
0: as yeah. Well, to ask then, you've mentioned a few, so you say it's um, global South elites and you've mentioned a few names, mm-hmm. and Kruger, Deepak Lal, mm-hmm. who in your estimation would you identify as the leading neoliberal thinkers? the most important ones that you would want anyone listening to the show to go away with and bear in mind as the the most important people to know about with respect to neoliberalism?
2: I think it just really depends on what you're interested in, right? I mean, I think that the work that I've been doing since that book came out, since Globalist came out, has been looking at people who kind of disagree with all the neoliberals who disagree with all the neoliberals I write about. So a chapter coming out with Dieter Pleva about neoliberal Euroscepticism. So the beginning of the 90s you had the Buchanan types and some others who said Europe is great we've locked in these constitutional constraints for good but at the same time you had people like Ralph Harris and others who then connected with UKIP and so on who said actually Europe is terrible it's a Trojan horse for socialism and later, even worse, green socialism. And so this thing needs to be smashed. So if you were interested in in the thinkers who were invested in sort of supranational constitutionalism, then I would name a series of people. But if you're interested in the people who were interested in sort of secessionism and breaking with multilateral trade organizations, then I would name other people. And if you're interested in many parts of the world that I know nothing about, then I wouldn't know the names to suggest. <laughs> um, then th- then that's where this whole thing becomes a necessarily like collaborative and often group research driven. But,
0: but can't project. we but can't we confidently um can we confidently reach some of these things and some of the people you talk about in the book? Like Hayek, um, like Ripke, if I Ripke, um, mm-hmm. like uh, von Mises?
2: I mean they're all just kind of I, I was trying to think about a kind of a metaphor for the, I think my half-assed methodology, if you want to even call it a methodology. I mean, I think that it's kind of like the flashlight method, right? I mean, I use these these people and their individual trajectories and biographies like kind of a flashlight that if you if you wave a flashlight long enough in a dark room, you'll start to get a sense of what's inside that room. But, you know, it's it's not going to get you as far as just turning on the light. Um and people like I'm thinking of people like Adam Toos, who do these sort of huge synoptic history projects that can map out an entire space and say, within this, we now have a good sense of who the relatively important players are, et cetera, what the flows of of revenues are, et cetera. I mean, my approach does not really, it isn't infinitely kind of informative in that way because I'm always being kind of, I'm always telling my story according to the last story I told. You know what I mean? So, well, it's I mean, just, you know, j- 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 just read,
1: reading books, reading them very seriously, and thinking about them, and then writing about them is uh, it's just a very worthwhile methodology, you know? Um, I mean,
2: it works. It works for me. I mean, it's. I don't have uh, grad students to train, so I don't have to worry about giving them, you know, loose advice.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the proof is in the pudding because the the book is excellent. Um, and I mean, I wanted to to touch on this question, uh, or at least refer to the question of scale, which you've already mentioned, because I think mm-hmm. the one of the misconceptions of um of of neoliberalism, which we've already touched on, is. This notion that neoliberalism is primarily a national project, uh, which puts forward, at least in its uh, rhetoric, a certain, you know, kind of popular capitalism vision, you know, a la Margaret Thatcher of uh, the individual or maybe the family at, at most um, competing mm-hmm. in the market. Uh, and actually, you put it very clearly in terms of uh, in terms of putting an emphasis on creating the sort of transnational institutions or at the very least certain rules which govern um which should, which actually should, uh, should contain or protect the market uh, from any mm-hmm. national interference. And it's interesting that then you go way back to the beginning, where this really starts, and uh, of another form of uh, transnational organization or international organization, which is that of um, of the empire. So I wanted, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the role of uh, the Habsburgs, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in shaping the outlook of the neoliberals right at the beginning.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think in response to the first part of your uh, the first part of your point, one of the sort of exhilarating things about writing the history of the in, the smart libertarians and neoliberals is that it's because they are individualists that they the question is begged immediately about collectives, right? Because they're they're smart enough to know that there is no order with with only atomistic individuals. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when you start with the individual, you immediately have to say, okay, but what is the milieu within which this individual operates? And so they are actually constantly asking questions about what scale the individual will be able to unfold their freedom best in, what the kind of um, things external to economics are that will be necessary for that individual to be able to unfold themselves to their fullest potential, et cetera, to realize their freedom. And sometimes those are things about The unpaid labor of women. Sometimes those are those things about the um, the disenfranchisement of certain groups of people, as the example of South Africa shows from my book. And then sometimes it's about access to resources in distant. Distant parts of the Earth, so certain forms of investor rights and um, the guarantee of of the movement of capital and goods become relevant then. So that you so you can start with the individual and immediately get to all of the problems of collective organization. And I think that um, that's operating, you know, in the best case. And many of the people I write about are, you know, indeed, I think very smart and rigorous thinkers. Um, they do what what I I kind of admire most is a kind of a contrapuntal way of looking at the world, which is they have their kind of ideal, the ideal, the normative version of how they want the world to look, but then they're conscious of the framework that actually exists and the kind of context within which those um, utopias can and can't be realized. And that's where the Habsburg empire comes in because although few of the Austrians that I describe were, that gung-ho about the Habsburg Empire while it existed, most of them became quite nostalgic and affectionate for it once it was gone. And the reason for that is that they saw in the Habsburg Empire the possibility of a very large free trade zone, the largest free trade zone in Europe, that managed to combine a kind of single economic space of circulation and a space of labor circulation too with um, the fulfillment adequately question mark of the national demands of this and that ethnic group and this and that linguistic group nationalities being just a synonym for linguistic groups at the time in habsburg in in habsburg austria
1: mm. and i so, think i mean eric Hobsbawm even comments i think that uh, vienna around the time or indeed but the whole swathes of the habsburg empire certainly the cities were some of the most cosmopolitan places that have ever existed and have existed mm-hmm. since so i guess there was a certain mm-hmm. appeal there too
2: Yeah. And Ludwig von Mises himself is a perfect example. I mean, he grew up in Lvov, which was a majority Polish city, but he was German speaking, Jewish background, and supposedly also spoke Ukrainian and I think French in his home. So he's like a, you know, he's a quadrilingual (laughs) inhabitant of a Polish town in the kind of the, the edge of the Habsburg empire. And for him, that was a kind of, ideal. And and for many people, it was, right? Karl Popper, Hans Kelsen. A lot of people talk about Habsburg Empire as the sort of ideal world in miniature, especially when seen kind of in the rearview mirror. So for Hayek and Mises, it became a kind of imaginary space, really, for thinking through the problem of economic order. And the way Hayek talked about it was that, that the Habsburg administration had perfected what he thought of as a kind of double government. So you had both a kind of policy that governed the space of economics and trade and a policy that governed the the world of um, representation and nationalities and culture. And these two things had worked worked with different principles. One was working on the principle of unity and sort of this, a single law for all, or isonomy is the, the term that Hayek liked to use for one rule or one law. That was the world of the economic space. But the other space was politics and people were receiving some level of self-determination they could open their own language school here and there and that was accommodated by the state so one of the things the the binaries that I kind of recover in the book that belongs to international law but was quite popular amongst my protagonists is the division between imperium and dominium so dominium being the kind of world of goods and property and imperium being the world of states and people and they felt sorry sorry go ahead yeah no, oh, and they they felt like it was a nice, you know, to scale model that had been perfected in the Habsburg Austrian space, and that was something that they they thought ideally could be scaled up to not just Europe but also the world.
0: As a follow-on precisely to that, um I think at least, another period, another historical period that you um draw out in the book and was really fascinating to me um was the unexpected peculiarity of Hayek's attitude towards the Cold War. And Mm. you talk about this towards the end of the book, and you say that, so for Hayek, um, he was quite indifferent or cool about it. So far -hmm. from being this kind of great world historic confrontation or joust between communism and capitalism, two competing, sharply defying social systems, he felt it was was, uh, perhaps the lesser aspect of a more important conflict that was happening at the time. I wonder, can you expand a little on his view and why he thought there were more important um, battles to be fighting and that the Cold War was something of a sideshow? Why was he yeah. cool on the Cold War, so to speak? Ha, ha, ha.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it is really um, astounding when you're when you're used to the kind of histories of the post-war period that that I am or that I was, you know, I was trained in reading where the Cold War frames everything and if if you're getting out of the great power confrontation then it's to do the global cold war where you talk about the way that that the clash between the united states and the soviet union sort of spilled over into all kinds of parts of the of the third world and the global south and drew them into this conflict or they were able to play the sides off each other but either way you swing it that's kind of the master narrative for sure of the post 45 period in most of the histories you're going to read the fact that it was kind of a non issue these neoliberal intellectuals kind of never ceases to amaze me. Um, It's not just that they found the idea of nuclear war just intellectually uninteresting, I guess, although it must have been that too. But it was the fact that they, they saw the mainline capitalism of the United States and Western Europe as following the same delusions in their minds as the Soviet Union itself. So they thought that since the 1950s especially western europe and the united states had united around a kind of a model of social democratic keynesianism according to which the the success of economic spaces was determined or measured in things like gdp growth and the assumption of providing social services for all and doing you know demand management and priming the pump in moments of in moments of crisis and so on was was all considered um, common sense, and they felt that that Hayek thought that that you know betook of the the pretense of knowledge, as he called it, just as much as the Soviet Union did, and both sides of the Cold War conflict were just making unrealistic promises to their populations, which would eventually lead to kind of economic collapse and downfall. So they needed to be fought. You know, one needed to fight on on both fronts against this, and in fact. The way that it's not hard to read The Road to Serfdom is that it's really a book that's written against you know, the, the rising British social democracy, hence the inscription to the socialists of all parties. The argument wasn't so much that we need to keep fascism and communism at bay, because who needed to really make that case at the time? It was assumed by all. But that what we really needed to worry about was the rise of those very ideologies of collectivism and the possibility of you know, the synoptic view of the economy. That was the that was the real danger. And that was seeping in under the auspices of Beveridge's welfare state and wartime planning. And it was that that needed to be um, addressed most quickly, because it was the most close at hand.
1: Yeah, that actually really surprised me that that aspect that it wasn't an an opposition, I mean, on on Hayek's part, but other neoliberals as well, that it wasn't even an opposition to socialism, which really drove uh, their thinking and their commitment to seeing their sort of vision of politics realize or vision of a very circumscribed vision of politics mm-hmm. um but it was actually the defeat of national politics as a, as an actual possibility and that's what that's what really obsessed them
2: mm-hmm. well they you know they they see that the rot began and with the the french revolution really i mean like a lot of good conservatives mm. they thought that that what the French Revolution did was it sort of propagated at the same time two principles. One, the idea of popular sovereignty, and two, the idea of kind of fully applicable enlightened rationality at the level of social engineering, you know, as they would call it. And both of those projects were primarily carried out at the level of the nation into the 20th century and only, in their mind, sort of... Um, uh, very problematically scaled up to the level of the world with discussions of things like the welfare world or um, national or world economic planning of the kind that you get, you know, in earnest in the 1970s when Nobel Prize winners like Vasily Leontief are making input-output tables for the whole world. Another Nobel Prize winner, um, uh, Jan Tinbergen, who Haberler and Hayek knew from, Vienna, from Geneva in the 1930s, was talking about ways that you could apply sort of social democratic style, technocratic planning to the globe. So what this problem of kind of globalism in the negative sense for them was something that was really an extrapolation of, uh, of a pathology that had begun with the French Revolution and had mostly been inhabiting the space of the nation where people had this deluded idea that the people, by their sheer will alone, could remake economic reality. And the real message of neoliberalism is that that's impossible, that there are limits to human uh, action, there are limits to human world-making capacity, and that ultimately one has to surrender to kind of the principles of the system for order to reproduce itself.
3: So I had a a question, I guess, sort of almost taking a step back on perhaps what the left can learn from the rise of neoliberalism or the, the eventual um dominance of of these ideas and something that you mentioned earlier the Mont pelerin society i think uh uh, many on the left um reference this this group um in laying the foundations for the era of neoliberalism um from maybe the late 80s to the 2008 crisis so before moving on to maybe some of these lessons about what the left could could i guess learn from from this this Mm the story of the book and the wider story as well could you tell us a little bit more about this um about this society and uh, the scope of its, of its influence?
2: Well, the Mont Pelerin Society was formed at, at, at Hayek's initiative in 1947 in, on the peak of Mount Pelerin, uh, mm. just around the lake from Geneva. And the idea was there to kind of restart or reboot some of the efforts that they'd been making between the wars. And as I talk about in the book, the the efforts between the wars had really been kind of part of the league of nations project so the league of nations project was about trying to kind of get the nations back together to to protect order in a way that had been seemingly irrevocably you know dismantled and smashed by the by the catastrophe of the first world war and one of the things conversations happening at the league of nations was how to kind of get a free trade world order restarted, and other historians have written about that. So there were meetings. That's where the the Lippmann Colloquium meeting in Paris uh, happened in that context, and they were going to have another meeting, but then the Second World War broke out, so they had to reform after the Second World War. And it was intended as a kind of open... Debating society. It was Hayek's attempt to kind of revive the experience of the late-night cafe conversations that he'd had in Vienna in the 1920s and the private seminar discussions that that F- Ludwig von Mises, his mentor, had hosted in the in the offices of the Chamber of Commerce in Vienna on the on the Ringstrasse in the 1920s and 30s. The idea was that in a time when everyone was coming up with big plans, you know, the Morgenthau plan, the Marshall plan, that it was necessary to kind of take a step back and reflect on the first principles according to which, you know, in their mind, a free society could be designed. And the idea was that the Mont Pelerin Society would not directly address policymakers in the sense of signing up to become, you know, members of the Planning Commission or ministers of finance, but that... There would be ideally a kind of a percolation of the ideas that they would share together, hash out together, and then hopefully get into the public sphere through what Hayek called the secondhand dealers in ideas. These were things like journalists, eventually think tanks, um, and so it wasn't intended in his mind to be a kind of um, a kind of targeting of policymakers with, you know white papers that could just be rolled out the next day for whatever the privatization of this or that. But it was just to be sort of seeding the public discussions with a different perspective than the one that he saw as ascendant at the time, which was premised on the idea of social justice, equality, redistribution, a balance of power between states and markets. And with that sort of beginning, the beginning of the rebooted Café Society of Vienna, A lot of other people got involved who had, let's say, slightly more mercenary ideas of how this should go down. So the Institute of Economic Affairs was created already in the 1950s um, as a means of acting as a kind of a conveyor belt of these Mont Pelerin ideas about smaller um, redistributive states. More roles for private enterprise, yeah. more capacity for the wealthy to keep the money in their pockets, less regulation. The Heritage Foundation, which is created by Edwin Fulner, a Mont Society member in the 1970s, becomes an right. even more a more explicit version of this, where they begin with saying you should be able to fit a policy idea in a briefcase, yeah. and then eventually pare it down to one uh, one sheet of paper, front and back, that will be delivered to all members of Congress before any. Big decision, so it eventually becomes one tweet. Eventually, dance <laughs> of the tweet, exactly. Um, so that, so I'd say it's a combination of, of this sort of a periodic gathering of often people with PhDs mixed with think tankers and journalists and and rich businessmen, batting around big ideas, and then some people who are like political entrepreneurially minded, taking ideas from there and figuring out how to package them and streamline streamline them in a way to. Get them into um, policy-making circles.
1: But I mean, I if we want this... to talk about uh, lessons for the left, I mean, I'm all on board with you know trying to recreate good times I had in the cafe back when. You know <laughs> that, that's what they were all about. That the moment we got Society. locked down already. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but do you, do
3: you think that this um, there are any practical um, lessons that the left could learn? I mean, is 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 the historical situation that we're in at the moment sufficiently similar that that the Mont Pelerin society is something that could or should be replicated to build what's perhaps often a bit grandiosely called a counter hegemonic network of of think tanks and research institutes for right. anti neoliberal leftism. Um, it's a bit
0: more than that, though, because it's also, I mean, um, it's something uh, it's not just kind of um, posed as an abstract question, but it's also there is peril and envy on the left. I think, mm. um, you know, there how these the neoliberals suddenly took over behind our backs. What mm. happened? How did they do it? Right. Um, can we do the same thing? So I think right. there is that sentiment on the left.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean I think that there's something a couple things to be said about that. First of all, I think it's very important to not fetishize the Montpellier Society. I mean yeah. I think that the Philip you tweeted about this the other day, but it was based, you know, on the Fabian Society itself. So they were already trying to rip off the left when they created the Montpellier Society. And and what what it is is an exclusive club with a limited membership that gets junkets to nice places like Cannes and, and Vina del Mar Chile under the Pinochet. Um dictatorship and Hong Kong in times of, of, of British colonialism paid for so they can just share some papers with each other. Um, mm-hmm. What comes out of that is, yes, the think tank model of influencing policy, but you don't need to call it a Mont Pelerin society of the left to just do counter organization to you know, think tank research and, and targeted policy creation. I mean, I think we already have that, that happening. I mean, I don't think that that trying to replicate step by step that historical example is any more advisable than 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 the society trying to duplicate the the Fabian society because both of them are kind of strange distorted versions of what the other one was i think that um the one of the more interesting things is to look at the way that neoliberals have talked about strategy over the decades and how it's changed. So the most relevant example there, and this is someone who I'm writing about more now for my new book project, is Murray Rothbard, mm-hmm. father of... Oh, anarcho- Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You thought it was bad enough, but I decided <laughs> to... Um, but father of anarcho-capitalism, joined the Pelerin Society at Hayek's invitation in the 1950s, um, starts the Cato Institute with with Charles Koch in the 1970s, and then has a disagreement with him. And the disagreement is that the Cato Institute has moved to Washington, and all it's interested in doing is cozying up to policymakers and slipping them you know, the briefcase to say, no, this is the new thing on urban enterprise zones or tax cuts. And of course, they were extremely successful and continue to be in doing that. But Rothbard thought that that was Actually, just a way of kind of feeding the beast, right? I mean, like the, in the swampy sense that this was just producing a new stratum of captured intellectuals whose think, whose you know, whose well-being re- re- relied on kind of revolving state revenues out from um, state policymakers through lobbyists and through their corporate clients in a way that was only going to reproduce a kind of a rigid top elite, which in the end, Rothbard was sure, would all decide to go socialist because that's what elites eventually do. He had this strange idea that elites are actually pre-programmed for socialism. And by the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, he was certain that that the people, the masses, had no longer had any faith in Socialism the way that they had in the 1930s, they were no longer organized into labor unions, at least in the United States in the same way. Their own fates were rising and falling with the Dow Jones because of the fact that all of the pensions had been privatized and put into the stock market. So what you were looking at now was was the masses as the kind of a weapon to be used against the elites instead of Hayek's model, which was figure out a way that the elites can constrain the masses. Right, so yeah. the yeah. the old model of sort of writing a better constitution and locking in kind of demands from the people was flipped by Rothbard, and he he was doing this explicitly. He was saying this is a this is a move against the Hayekian trickle down ideological strategy approach and towards what he called a strategy of right wing populism, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and that's the term that he used in the early '90s when he was advising the um, insurgent Republican candidate Pat Buchanan, mm-hmm. and his argument. His argument, this is where I think it's important to sort of explore the different strains of neoliberal thought, whereas one camp of neoliberals, the kind of Buchananites and the Hayekians, were saying, this is more or less okay. Let's just, you know, constitutionally lock in the status quo enough that we don't get any radical disruptions and revolutions. Rothbard was saying, I disagree with the idea of a state altogether. I disagree with the idea of any kind of public law, let alone public international law. So let's figure out how we can use insurgent right-wing political parties as kind of transitional vehicles to a more stateless future. So he's looking around in the 90s and he's saying, this is amazing. Yugoslavia just dissolved. The Soviet Union just dissolved. States can die. Why can't we use the revolution of white Euro males, quote unquote, which is what he called it in 1992, as a way of shattering democratic politics at the top level in the United States. And people pick up on it in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria and and ride that out to a kind of a secessionist private law society that will come afterwards.
0: But Rothbard is more the kind of, um, I mean, I, this is what I'm getting from what you're saying. He's yeah. more the progenitor of some of the kind of neoliberalism that we see Perhaps in the two thousand and eight era or um, yeah. just before the two thousand eight era, more than the Hayek kind of Thatcher connection?
2: I think so. I mean I think it's it's only by kind of recovering that that line of thought that you can make sense of what's happened since twenty sixteen as anything except the way it's narrated sometimes falsely, I think, a backlash against neoliberalism.
1: But do, I mean I do you see that, sorry, I mean I just want to touch with it. I mean, do you see a continuity between those I mean, you know, in, in Thatcher's Populism. I mean, something we've discussed on this podcast mm-hmm. a number of times before, and it kind of as a corrective to the idea that, you know, this populism has surged out of nowhere uh, yeah. suddenly in the past couple of years. But that actually, you know, Thatcher and Reagan were forms of, of populism, that they had yep. a kind of that it wasn't against the masses, against the people, but actually that the people could be uh, the bearers of a uh, popular capitalism.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think that I think that in practice, maybe sometimes even more than in than in theory. You know neoliberalism in the in the 80s and 90s did split that difference between kind of um, you know having people cathex somehow onto the market and having them buy in viscerally while also you know engineering a state that served the um, interests of reproducing a particular form of capitalism but it may be that the theorists put their emphasis in different places so I think that they're kind of there wasn't all that much I mean just using my very narrow lens of kind of Mont Pelerin society discussions through the 80s and 90s, there weren't that many people there who were talking about how they'd won, so to speak. There wasn't a lot of people saying, look, the population is now on our side. We have managed to win over the common person to the goals of freedom, the goals of individualism and liberty as understood and realized through Competition and kind of you know the social Darwinism of the kind that they propagate. They were always suspicious of the masses. They were mm. always waiting for the whole thing to come undone, which is why even at the moment of their greatest success, um, this is something that I'm I'm working on in my new book. And actually, I'm going to be in in um, I'm going to be in England at at Queen Mary and Goldsmiths and places that'll probably have already done this by the time this airs. But um, but I'm talking about how in the 1980s people like Milton Friedman actually were really drawn to the example of Hong Kong because he felt like the shutting down of democracy in Hong Kong as a colonial state and later as a special administrative region actually ensured the reproduction of political, of economic freedom in a way that democracies always threaten to upend. So even when, and the same is true in the 1990s. So Many people, in some cases, rightfully see the the sort of post-Maastricht Treaty and Lisbon Treaty EU as a kind of grand achievement of neoliberalism in practice. And be that as it may, it's remarkable that many of these actual neoliberals were deeply suspicious of it. And so the Rothbardian move to sort of say, I'm not looking at the elites, I'm not looking at the, the laws, I'm not looking at the constitutions, I'm looking at the kind of affect and the, and the, the mass emotion of the people in the, in, you know, the, what he calls the kind of the rednecks. Um, that's not a move that very many neoliberal theorists anyway, made. They, they continued to operate in the, in the, um, the Hayekian mode, which is well described by Andrew Gamble as, you know, the elites he can, tr- he can reason with and try to persuade. But for most people, he just tries to figure out ways to disempower them.
0: <laughs> politically. It's, uh- one thing you draw out, and this um, this ties in, I guess, with the earlier points we were talking about, with um, where we are, where we're at now, and also how society is envisioned. Is um, you mentioned so Hayek as this kind of the among the most influential neoliberal thinkers, you mentioned in the book how hostile he was to the mathematical modeling that was taking off with econometrics and macroeconomic modeling, because mm. he took this as part of this conceit that society could be knowable and then manipulable. Right. So, But it struck me then, the one thing that's strange is that on, in the same era in which we characterize kind of the, you know, if you want to say neoliberal ascendancy from, say, 78 to 2008, roughly, um it also coincides with the consistent expansion of econometric modeling as the centerpiece of economics so um how do those how do you how might we reconcile the contradiction between mm-hmm. on the one hand the growth of neoliberalism which should be hostile to econometric modeling and on the, the other hand that econometrics just grows and grows and even spills over the boundaries of economics into other social science disciplines
2: yeah no i mean that's a good question i think this is where it's quite helpful to be um precise about the different schools of neoliberalism. I mean, I take the the liberty of coining my own <laughs> term in the in the globalist book, which is the Geneva School of Neoliberalism, to talk about those neoliberal thinkers, most of whom are European, um, many of whom come from German-speaking countries, who were kind of most concerned with problems of international economic order and and whose crowning achievement was In some ways, the thing closest to their heart was the World Trade Organization created in 1995. So if you follow that trajectory, then what you find is that the most influential neoliberals tended to be lawyers rather than economists. And you also find then, I was astounded by this myself, that if you read all of the articles and the the proposals and the documents leading up to the creation of the WTO, you find no math there, you find no formulas, you find actually no arguments about deliverables or the likely outcomes of following the the this the framework of binding agreements that were going to be signed and which did which did get signed and turned into supposedly enforceable law with the with the WTO what you got was an argument based on first principles arguments about reciprocity arguments about arguments about you know um, binding arrangements with disputes that would be settled in particular agreed upon ways. So that is one way of t- thinking about the problem of economic order, which is kind of an e- economics without math, right? That's one, that's one kind that is not exhaustive of the way that the world economy is organized, but it's certainly there. When you look closer to the United States, um, even in the kind of arguments being made in structural adjustment programs, or the sort of neoliberal turn at the World Bank, you still don't always find um, arguments premised on things like econometric uh, calculation. Often what you find is a kind of common sense about, let's say, the idea that the rule of law is a good thing for economic growth. And so what we can do is, is say, create things like rule of law indices. And if, if these policies, and you go down a checklist, are being... Um, adhered to by a, a particular nation, then they score relatively high on the rule of law index. But still the idea that this is all going to cash out as greater growth is often either taken as a kind of an article of faith or sort of shown quickly and then passed over, right it, it, the The project is really about, I think, thinking about order as um, a problem of law and statecraft. Of course, then the closer you get to the United States and by the time you get to the world of private, sort of ordering in the in the world of finance, then of course econometrics really, you know, shows its force, right? And I think in the in the space of central bank decision making, this is probably like the citadel of, you know, mathematicized economics. Right. The the um, and Alan Greenspan is a perfect example of that, right? Someone who and he he simultaneously will say things like, I, you know, what can we know about the world that's unknowable, but at the same time can be a very, you know, ideological practicer of economic forecasting and with, with sort of pretty discrete outcomes being predicted based on, on certain, on certain decisions. And that whole genealogy that comes out of the Chicago school in particular, and Robert Lucas and people like that is its own storyline really. And it's, and the kind of stuff that Donald McKenzie, the economic anthropologist describes, you know, with the way that financial markets are, are organized in certain ways so that they fit the outcomes of econometric prediction. Um, it's simply part of a different story than the one I told in the book, and I think it's 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 equally important. And what I'd actually love is to is to see the kind of counterpart to the book that I wrote I wrote, but written from Chicago, um, mm-hmm. and talking about the way that these econometric practices, which supposedly are not interested in world economics, are actually you know creating the kind of software according to which world economic relations end up getting reprogrammed by the. 2000s.
1: Yeah, and as Phil uh, referred to in his question, it seems that that sort of tendency is becoming a little bit more dominant. I mean, certainly as it seeps out into uh, just general sort of social thought as a whole, you know, social sciences as a whole. So
2: Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that talking, returning to the question about sort of counter mobilizations too, I mean, I think that this division is really important to think about. I think that the difference between Um, you know, creating policy that's based on um, a principled application of econometrics and economic expertise, on the one hand, which is obviously one way that, you know, thinking of places like IPPR and stuff, like they work with economic modeling, they don't see that as being ideologically problematic. But I think that the message of the Mont Pelerin model, if you want one, is that that's not enough, right? I think you need to combine that kind of Application of economic expertise with all of its deliverables measured in numbers with a kind of second order vision of ordering. What's the alternative version of ordering, right? I mean, I talk about in the book, the creation of certain kinds of laws and states as an encasement of the markets. And the, the, the simple, but I think incorrect, assumption would be then, then an anti-neoliberal project would be just undoing the encasement or something, Unca- you know, uncasing, mm-hmm. liberating, yeah. liberating economic relations. But obviously that's wrong. I mean, it's it actually, the point is that, it, it, that if you take on board this version of the neoliberal project, you realize that undoing it is more difficult than you think. It's not just a question of taming the markets, you know, getting them under yeah. control or managing them. The, neoliberals are already doing that you now need to come up with your own way of encasing them for with your own kind of outcomes and in your own metaphors and your own you know, flowery language, really, that will make this persuasive to people and make them connected to their everyday lives.
0: One thing that strikes me about the... Um Mathematized character of other social sciences and the borrowing from an inspiration from econometrics that you find in political science, say, part of it, I think, is also linked to the um, the, the neoliberal era as well, not in the sense of intellectual kind of influence so much as the um, it's kind of ideological centrism and stability so mm-hmm. that it's a technocratic outlook and it provides technical fixes appropriate to an era in which um kind of basic questions of social and political order are treated as settled. And so everything else is basically something which can be um, manipulated quite easily. You can make kind of long-term predictions and inferences on the basis of um, quantitative projections because you simply assume that the overall framework is solid and stable and will continue. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. there's a deeper kind of connection as well Mm -hmm. with the the neoliberal era. But we wanted
2: to... Can I just shift. say something about that really quickly? Because sure, I think yeah. it's specifically an observation that I've made from being on this side of the Atlantic to uh, how fraught these co- these questions get specifically in the context of British higher ed. I think because the fact that you all over there are subject to such extreme forms of kind of quantification and ranking as academic producers um, is, you know, produces its own kind of <clears throat> hysteria or anxiety, which I would totally relate to. (laughs) I would never want to work in the British higher ed system for that reason. And the amazing thing I found is that explanations about things like the ref are often proposed from two seemingly diametrically opposed corners of politics. So you have some people that say, well, this is new public management that is sort of like Stalinism or something. And then you have people like Will Davies who say, no, this is like new public management, which is the epitome of neoliberalism. And mm-hmm. this creation of league tables and rankings and competition, um, and so it's it's kind of hard to imagine how it can be both of those things at the same time. Well, it's funny like, actually.
1: Mark Fisher used to refer to it as as market Stalinism, specifically trying right. to bring those together. So.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's a guy named Craig Brandest, a Soviet uh, s- historian who who a few years ago was working on management under Stalin, and then got his annual form about the ref to fill in and just (laughs) as a kind of piss take, decided to just write a bunch of his primary sources into his evaluation. And he got back kind of glowing remarks saying how well he seemed to have done. (laughs) And he did a kind of expose in the Times Higher Ed Supplement. So, I mean, there's clearly a case to be made for both sides. But I just wanted to sort of, I guess, in a gesture of transatlantic empathy, (laughs) suggest that in some ways, you know, you guys are really in the heart of that that micromanaging project of kind of state stability as you say and a selection of what kinds of information and what kinds of knowledge production are you know worthy of being produced and that's an incredible pressure
3: so it's funny that you should mention ranking um, because we wanted to to finish <laughs> with a with a question essentially who's your who's your highest ranked um, neoliberal but i mean so you said <laughs> earlier that you you wrote a study of the enemy so the, the neoliberals yeah. rather than the opposition I mean yeah who is who is your your number one um I, I guess it's the, it's a it's a thinker that maybe you've come across who you admire or, you th- or more that you think has important insights to acknowledge who's your best enemy, I guess essentially
2: well, that's a really good question I mean, I think that there's two ways of approaching that. it kind of comes out of recent stuff, which is who are the people who or look most like you know it's it's very like Lacare-ish kind of a problem, which is you know who is your mm-hmm. real enemy, the one who is most like you or the one who is most radically different from you, as far as you think, mm-hmm. and then and then maybe you have it wrong, right? Um, so I think of the people who look the most. One of the interesting research discoveries I've had recently is looking at the way Austrian economics kind of transformed into the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, and to find that a lot of them, especially around George Mason University, often vilified as the kind of um, stronghold of the coctopus, um, A lot of them were were reading the same things that leftists were reading at the time, for lack of yeah. a better word. I mean, they were they were interested in um, in Lukman and kind of ideas of um, of hermeneutics. So they were reading Gadamer. Some of them were even reading uh, Derrida. And kind mm. of getting into this idea that meaning is constructed, because if you take Austrian economics at its at its word, then there is no such thing as value per se,
0: because mm.
2: value is totally subjective. And so if you want to understand value beyond just the money relation, then you need to open up all of the tools, the toolkits of sociology and anthropology and probably mm. philosophy, too, and sort of say, like, well, where does this medium called culture come from that we all mm. a, a, agree that we swim in? So these were the these were the problems that they were encountering in the 1980s, and I actually had no idea. Um, I came across that, and they were also quite interested in cybernetics and the application of of, of computers and the way that wow. artificial intelligence sort of both confirmed and undermined some of the assumptions we had about humans as rational, um, interest-driven actors. And what was interesting is it's at that it's at that very moment that you get a radical rupture with the right wing. Austrians who cluster around Murray Rothbard and the mm-hmm. Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. And they reject what they see as the kind of groupuscules of, of these radical French influenced Austrian pseudo-libertarians up in Virginia, um, and start their own project down in Alabama and which becomes the place where I would see my clearest enemies because what they say is this idea that culture is subjective and can be reshaped is 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 bullshit. And actually culture is grounded not just in, um, you know, not just in concrete histories, but actually in in genetic makeup. And mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of what the the kind of rump racial psychologists like Richard Lynn and to lesser extent, Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein were saying to them was nothing less than true. And it was, in fact, The hammer blow to egalitarianism is that human nature is itself unequal, and those differences are based in race, and they're based in sex, and you can't get rid of them. So you need to accept the fact that basically white men are smarter and more capable than others and are members of this cognitive elite, and everyone else is below them, therefore should be not just given less, but should also be in like a subjugated status in whatever future state they they end up with, in whatever private law society they manage to cobble together. So that so that mentality which is dead with Rothbard, but then lives on in his disciple Hans Hermann Hoppe, um, who is a sort of a radical anti-democrat, calls democracy the god that failed, and manages to act as a kind of fulcrum for a lot of tendencies between the kind of free market fundamentalist position and the scientific racist position. If you read any profile of sort of these people who walk into mosques or walk into synagogues, you'll almost always hear about them starting with libertarianism and then moving on to um, whatever it is, eco-fascism or um, white supremacy of different kinds, Mm -hmm. this so-called libertarian to alt-right pipeline is real but i think it's it's important to see that it happens really by way of this grounding of difference and grounding of inegalitarianism in human nature in a very indissoluble way and i think that is very different from the cultural austrian approach which says many of the same things that we would be comfortable with, that just culture is shifting and it can be remade and, and you know, inequality is relative, et cetera. So I guess those two sides of the Austrian economic development in the last 20 years kind of are both my mm. my close enemy and my far enemy.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. And that's fascinating, um, not just for, I mean, and it's been fascinating, not just in terms of how you finish, because I think that seems to point the way to which neoliberalism perhaps is evolving, is becoming something else, and the way, the ways in which that might even become a sort of uh, ruling ideology, but also the ways uh, in which uh, neoliberalism has come to shape the world today, and 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 yeah, really providing a, a narrative which stands very much against, I guess, a lot of the common sense notions that we that we often operate with. So that's been brilliant. Thank you very much. I feel like I've learned a huge amount today. <laughs>
2: yeah. Thanks, thanks very much, Quinn. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Thanks yeah. for having me. If you like that, there's more. We draw out some broader conclusions to what we've learned in our synthesis sessions for subscribers only. Lots of S's there. Anyway, do subscribe. It's at patreon.com slash bungacast. Only patrons have access to this bonus content. Synthesis sessions. Get on at patreon.com slash bungacast. Alright, that's it. Catch you later. Bye-bye.